Welcome to The Grass is Greener, where we talk about how to be grateful for what you got, conversations that make your head spin and stop your head from spinning. I am your host, Paul Green, and I will be bringing you all kinds of goodies, sometimes just some music and sometimes some great conversations, some interviews with some of your favorite fantastical people. I'm glad you're here. Please review this, give it some stars, five of them, and share it and leave a comment and make sure you subscribe and just share it with some friends. That would be super duper radical. Uh, thanks so much for being here. I can't wait to bring you so many cool things, stuff you didn't know, stuff you didn't know that you didn't know, and some things that you probably thought you knew and know better than me. Some of you might know me as Dr. Carson Shepard on the hit show When Calls a Heart. I also do some of your favorite Christmas movies and other romantic comedy movies. I'm on the series Bitten just before that, and I used to do a bunch of men's health covers, so I've kind of been a fitness enthusiast my whole life and learned a bunch of things I'll share with you. I'm passionate about adventure and discovery. I'm very curious, so we're going to bring a bunch of that here. So sit back and enjoy the ride. In this episode, we sit down with Russ Reimer and Brent Kern. Russ is my best friend for since I was 13 and BK since I was 15. Russ uh, owns one of the largest uh, sports agencies in Canada. BK is a restaurateur and an architect. They're both phenomenal human beings, deep souls. And I think you'll enjoy our conversation uh, about the genesis of a lot of really interesting things. And they share some wisdom, some knowledge. And uh, it's just a short, great conversation that we had when they came to visit me in Vancouver right at the end of 2020. What a magical year. (laughs) Enjoy. And we're live to my very first podcast, and I have two very special guests, but I first want to let you know I am the host, Paul Green, and I am still thinking about a couple names for this podcast. So the grass is greener was one, the green zone was one, so we're just checking around to see, make sure that which one we can use and not have somebody yell at us or say, please take that down. I have been asked by my fans to do a podcast for a very long time, and I wanted to take some of my music concerts that I was doing over um, the quarantine and over COVID and share them with the world uh, through a podcast, And but I figured I wanted to do a little introduction and welcome you guys to my channel and to my show, but first, something really cool has happened is... I am in Vancouver filming uh, When Calls a Heart Season 8, and my best, best friends came in for a visit right in the last week of filming to uh, have, and we have never hung out the three of us together, which is really cool uh, and really strange since we've known each other for 30 years. But uh, I have with me in my apartment, 30 plus stories above Vancouver, Russell Reimer, who has uh, been my friend since I was 13. And Brent Kern, who has been my friend since I was 16, we'd say. Okay. And these two guys are both very, very special. Both of them have uh, shaped who I am in in some of the most crucial ways and different ways. And uh, we'll get into a couple of those stories along the way here. But um, Russell, why don't we start with you? So you are Russell Reimer. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about like where you're from and how we met? Yeah, sure. Um, I I remember... um you know, when I was young, I, I was a Canadian, but uh, my dad was a pastor, so we had moved from uh, Steinbeck, Manitoba, uh, which is you know not unlike um, the, uh, the 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 basic look of Evergreen. I mean, it has that old 
uh, timey feel, and it, it's a town that's in a lot of ways trapped in the past, but has this incredible um, and vibrant economy, and you know all of these you know great Mennonite people, and my heritage is Mennonite, but we were you know General Conference or Evangelical Mennonites, so. Uh, when my parents told told uh, my brother and sister and I that we were moving to Seattle, um, you know, my experience with the big city might have been Fargo, North Dakota, or Winnipeg, Manitoba, and it it, um, it was a real it was a real shock. But you know, thankfully the the Reimer family we make friends easy, and and um, you know we had a we had a pretty fun uh, time in in Seattle for a couple of years while my dad was there as an associate pastor of a. Uh, of an evangelical church uh, in Federal Way, Washington, which is right between Seattle and and uh, and Tacoma, and uh, my dad's calling when it took him to a task. When uh, I ended up um, going to church, and of course, you make church friends, and and uh, there was this precocious kid who reminded me of myself, and uh, we, we we became pretty close friends at that time. I think I was maybe fifteen at the time. You were actually my sixteenth birthday, so I was fifteen at the time, and then um, uh, Paul and I have been rock steady ever since i remember that day it was either that day or right around where we started playing pepper and i didn't know what pepper was it was uh, a game with volleyball that i play now with my son all the time where you throw ball back and forth and bumps head spike back and forth and russ kind of because of practicing that with you i decided to try out for the team and then it kind of you know that's actually i eventually went to college for uh but you she, being my best friend during those times was so crucial uh, along the way. Um, you had so much confidence coming in. You were wearing these like pink ocean Pacific pants. Oh, look, I'm wearing pink pants today. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and you had braces and you it's had an this, homage. it's an, um, this is, it's an homage uh, podcast. I had figured I'd dress in pink is you, you had this confidence and the swagger and you were the president and once you were in high school and you just exuded this kind of confidence that really helped me, start to care less what people thought of me because of how you engaged with people like you sort of expected people to love you and you also loved people but it was like you the way that you moved and the way that you had confidence really really affected me and one day you shared with me that paul people are going to have an opinion of you one way or the other why would you adjust the way you behave just to like shape just to adjust yourself to their opinion or can you say it better yeah i mean i think the essence of it was that we um, in my young life, the the gap between thinking and action was basically like a millisecond. I didn't really take the time to ever consider consequence. I think, you know, what my driving force as a teenager, especially, and even now in my 40s, um, was really just, I mean, take action, do it immediately. If you know that it's right and it's centered, it comes from this conversation I had with my mom when I was about you know, eight or nine, maybe 10 years old. And she, um, she said, you know, Russell, God has given you special gifts. You, you, you have to recognize them, but if you don't use them and cultivate them, he'll just take them away. You'll just lose them. So I, I think from that time in my own life, I just did it. You know, I just always took action. So, um, I never once stop to contemplate, well, what are those girls going to think about me? Or what is that popular dude at school going to think? And what I found was when I was really fully just being myself, um, that's when I made the best and truest friends. Uh, that's when I, that was actually had some, you know, gravity and a lot of um, attraction. And, and 
uh, it was the reason why I went to a you know a new school in grade ten as a five foot kid, and who played volleyball and wore pink pants and and somehow figured out how to become president there. So yeah. I think it was more about you know if 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 you try to um, you know become social tofu where where you just you know work your way into and become you know the same makeup as your surroundings with the same flavor as your as everything that's around you. Um, you you may fit in, but you'll you'll never stand out. So that was that was kind of the way to that I I think I tried to live, and hopefully even if I didn't say those specific words to you, that's what you took from that's from what how I, I took was. From yeah. It. yeah, and you saying you you may fit in, but you'll never stand out is is another way to summarize it. It's like I just remember I just remember your confidence, and I you know both my parents are very quiet, and it's almost like you gave me permission to have a bit of a voice, a bit of an opinion that like something, don't like something, and and to and to you know question authority, not just go along. I was already a bit contrarian, but you were like ten x my contrarianism. <laughs> yeah, I think I think constructive contrarian is how I'd pretty much describe my entire life. I mean, you know, um, rebel with a cause. You, you have to you have to um, you have to have some focused and motivated intent behind your rebelliousness, or else it becomes a pretty destructive force. I mean, right. What I think I saw in you when you were young was that. You know, you weren't you weren't a bad kid. You were a kid who, who who messed up, um, but you weren't a mess up. You know, like you weren't. Right. There was no real underlying problems here, and I thought with just a little bit of, you know, guidance and friendship, and maybe even a pull in the right direction instead of a push, that you could see that um, what was actually special about you, what could actually make you become something great, um, was the stuff that you should cultivate, not. Not the stuff that would help you, um, you know, uh, make sure that your parents didn't think you were too rebellious, or make sure that your parents didn't feel feel embarrassed in front of a church community, right? I mean, I am very certain, uh, as I made it my young life mission, to um, to rebel in a way that created a distance with my dad, right? That that we were not we were not the same, and we philosophically did not align, right? And that was even done very constructively and conscientiously. But I, I mean, I hope I gave that to you too, where uh, even as a young kid, 13, 14 years old, as you were growing up, that you re- recognize you didn't have to, um, uh, you didn't have to wait for anybody's permission to, to, to speak up. Right. Yeah. Right. That's, that's one thing you definitely gave me. And now B and now BK, uh, just one of the many things we'll get into the selling pot and, and telling me if I sold pot anymore, I'd have to find myself a new best friend, which is a, another story. And it's a, it's a good story, but BK is next sitting here on the sofa. And just to set the stage here a little bit, Brent's visiting BK's visiting. Uh, we call him BK cause his last name is Kern. And, uh, and we're sitting on our sofa, out looking out over a gorgeous sunny day here in Vancouver. Uh, I have another week on Wayne Cole's Heart, and these guys just came into town to hang out with me. And I met Brent playing volleyball as well. And Brent, Brent is also living in Edmonton, and Rusty lives in Calgary right now, and I live in L.A. And we've remained close over all these years. BK is also Oliver's godfather, which is... Uh, uh, a badge of of honor in the sense that BK always remembers his birthday and always thinks about these special things to do with Oliver and has really you know we we, we chose BK as a godfather and Ariane as the godmother for Oliver um, and Brent had a similar really 
interesting effect on my life growing up. Like to have older friends, because you guys are both a couple years older than me. And I met you when I was a young teenager. And BK, when I met you, you were you were graduating, right? Pretty much. Yeah, that's right. And so you were, and I was just going into grade 10, I think. Yeah. And you came out to the farm and we had a volleyball court out there. And that that's the first place that we met? Yeah, I think that's my first recollection. I, I think it was through Russ coming out there to play a game of beach. And uh, when I say beach, I think it was grass, right? <laughs> it was grass. <laughs> it was a Canadian beach in Millet. Um, yeah, my story's not quite as elaborate as Russ's, but it, yeah, it was to come play volleyball was the first memory I have of meeting you. And what brought you to Wetaskiwin? Because Wetaskiwin, it's so strange. Like Russell came to Wetaskiwin from Seattle. And for those of you who don't know, Wetaskiwin is next to a couple of towns where there's just, there's 10,000 people in Wetaskiwin when we were there. And I think there's 9,000 now. It's, yeah, it's going down. It's going down. Um, and yeah, so what brought you and your family to Wetaskiwin? Because you were in Millet. You were like outside of Wetaskiwin. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'm not sure to this day, actually. But we were living actually in Dallas, Texas, and uh, my dad had a farm out by Millet that we used to go to on the weekends when we lived in Edmonton. And uh, when we moved back from Dallas, that just became our permanent home. So the closest high school was Wetaskiwin, and that's where I ended up going to high school, and I went to junior high in Millet. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I didn't... How did I not know you were, your family was from Dallas? Well, we only Texas. lived there in grade six. Okay. So we lived in Edmonton. We had the farm in, in Millet. And then in grade six, my dad was big into horses and real estate and that. So we moved to Arlington, which is where the Cowboys Stadium is, uh, for grade six. And then uh, tragically, we're brought back. Not tragically, ultimately, amazingly. Mm-hmm. Amazingly, we're brought back to live in Millet. In Millet. Yeah, just yeah. over the Millet line. And, and one of the reasons I wanted both these guys, not only because it was convenient that they were here, just bring the mic a little closer to your mouth in case you say, yeah, there we go. Um, and if you two BK can come a tiny bit closer. One of the reasons I wanted these both of the gentlemen here uh, for my first podcast is who you surround yourself with is so important to your journey in life and your trajectory. Like you are the sum total of your five closest friends financially emotionally spiritually like you you look around who you surround yourself with is really your your where your water finds its level and when you have friends that have been around for 30 plus years and a lot of times people ask me like how do you stay grounded in a business that you know I've been in fashion and now I'm in I'm film and television which can be a bit unstabilizing and and not uh, typically very grounding. Um, and you guys having you guys as my friends for so many years is a big piece of that foundation of help to keep your head screwed on straight when, you know, it can get, you can lose your path pretty quickly in a business like that. So, um, I wanted to bring you both on and, and thank you as well as for being such good friends to me over the years and ask you both ask really compelling questions and you both ask, uh, questions that, and we go deep, like we've been here for three days. The three of us have never actually spent time together. Just the three of us. There's always been somebody else. And we sit down and there's, we don't put a TV on. We just talk. And it's like just amazing the depth 
of some of our conversations. And, uh, you know, just growing up in such a small town and, you know, BK is an architect and you're also a graphic designer and, and just share a little bit what you guys do currently, like right now, just set the stage for us. Go, uh, Rusty, like will you own yeah. a, um, an athlete agency, a sports management agency? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I'm, I uh, actually, and I, I can honestly say that I was inspired by Kelly Strait, your first uh, modeling agent uh, to start the business. I mean, it was honestly something that I, I knew that I always wanted to work in sport. Uh, I was always interested in sport, but uh, finding the way in in the right, um, you know, in a very purposeful way. And so we, we, we founded, um, I founded an agency about 15 years ago, uh, grew that agency and then moved on from that agency and founded something new. Actually, I think today might be our nine year anniversary, uh, October 30th today. Wow. Yeah. Manifesto Sport. Manifesto Sport Management. And, um, uh, you know, really on this philosophical belief that sport was more uh, than just transactional, you know, something that could really uh, unite people, positively influence people, build uh, community and um, that philosophy or our manifesto became uh, really the grounding principle and I think that the reason we've been successful is that we've um, had a philosophical foundation for why we do business that resonates with athletes when you sit down with athletes and maybe in some cases their parents and you talk about what drives and motivates you um, you know our our ability to storytell and the investment of, of time that we take in in differentiating athletes and then show people the work that we've done it's um, it's really it's it's built its own momentum so it's pretty it's been pretty fun to be at the at the helm of something that's grown yeah and you've really grown it into something are you able to share who some of your athletes are yeah for sure I mean um, uh, I'm just trying to think who your listeners would know but uh, maybe maybe the most popular figure that Americans might know is uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Uh, he's a uh, his dad was Vladimir Guerrero uh, Senior, of course, Hall of Fame ma- Major League Baseball player, uh, and Vladdy is you know widely considered uh, one of the top prospects of the last twenty years. Uh, has an incredible bat, and you know there was this amazing image of him at second base when his dad uh, broke the all-time hits records for the Montreal Expos. Vladdy was actually born in Montreal as a Canadian. And here's this little kid, you know, who's um, kind of pudgy and uh, maybe seven or eight years old at the time. And his dad invited him out in his Expos uniform to meet him at, at second base. So that's kind of an iconic moment that that's some, that might resonate with some of your viewers. And then we work with athletes um, like like Tessa Virtue, who I think many would uh, recognize from uh, the 2018 Olympic Games. Uh, her and her partner, Scott Moyer, are uh, undoubtedly the best uh, ice dance duo of all time. Uh, five-time Olympic medalists and uh, three-time Olympic gold medalists. So uh, she's become uh, a, really a Canadian sweetheart in Canada, and we've helped her, you know, build a, a transitional career beyond uh, beyond sport and into into her personal brand development. And then obviously Mark McMorris, who's a big snowboarder. Yeah. What do you think as an agent? What makes an athlete great? Like what separates the ones that make it to the ones that don't make it? Yeah. I, th- I mean, I've been a, I've been a student of this because watching you know athletes up close um has been uh has been pretty pretty fun and i th- i think it demystifies I mean, a lot of people go in going you know oh the, how they present themselves on ice or the day that they decide to compete that's you know um that's what the athletes made of but you really realize that um greatness is an, built on an ability to continually 
take risks. Everybody else, I think, lives their life, most of their life, with this idea that incremental improvements, you know, every day, a little bit more, every day, a little bit more. And an athlete has to consider the, the cumulative sum of every little piece of things that they do. I remember an athlete telling me a story about looking at a grape and just determining a, a grape on their plate, if that was going to contribute to winning a gold medal or if it was not. Wow. And they had to have a decision-making calculus about a single grape. Um, so I think greatness is in all of the small moments that that accumulate when you're ready to perform. And you 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 build a level of confidence within yourself that that says, when I'm when I'm ready, I'll know that I've done everything to prepare myself so that you don't think there's anything left except for the performance. Uh, and that all that preparation continues, I mean, literally until the moment that you step on the ice. I'll tell one quick story about Tessa. There was a uh, Scott uh, Moyer, her, her partner. They were 18 or 18 and 19 years old, or 18 and 20 years old at the Vancouver Olympics. Home Olympic Games, uh, about to step on the ice in what really, other than maybe the, the men's hockey gold or the women's hockey gold, would have been the defining moment of the entire Olympics, home Olympics here in Vancouver. And there was a, a moment that was caught on camera where Scott whispered something in Tessa's ear in the corridor just before they walked onto the ice together uh, to present themselves to the audience. And when I started working with Tessa, I wanted to unlock the secret, right? And, and uh, ask her what Scott said. And she said, he leaned in and said, show me the stage and set me free. Wow. Pretty wow. powerful moment, right? And the, yeah, the, yeah. the greatness of it was that the preparation had all been done. The yeah. freedom was in the performance, right? Mm, so I, I thought right. that's, when I think of greatness, that's, that's the story that I think of. What do you think, BK, greatness, when you think of greatness? Like you've owned restaurants, you're an architect, you're one, one of the surprisingly fantastic chefs every time when, when you know, you help redesign our home in Los Angeles and now our place in Lake Arrowhead. And so you, you, you know, you also have the, this unique, you know, if I go to Chicago and I'm like, BK, where do I go for, where do I go for uh, barbecue? Like BK, or if I'm in New Orleans or something, BK knows he'll come to this, visit us here and, and show us, show you the city that you're living in. You're sort of this like uh, concierge, <laughs> concierge of, of uh, experiential concierge. Um, so what is, and to you, BK, what is, what is greatness? Wow, that's a good question. I guess um, everybody has their own definition or metrics of what constitutes greatness. I mean, Russ touched upon athletic greatness and what ele- I I know from my my experience. Uh, one of our friends who ended up playing on the World Beach Volleyball Tour, Aaron Cadu. Um, my time on tour with him taught me that the difference between first and a hundredth is not that uh, large. It basically occurs from the shoulders up. And, uh, you know, it's it's uh, sometimes hard to put your finger on it, but I would say every almost everyone at that level has the skill from shoulders down. They all physically can do it for the most part. Mm-hmm. It's just those small things from shoulders up that separates them. So um, I, think, I think it just uh, resides mentally within us. I mean... Sports are a little different because uh, you can have everything shoulders up and maybe you're 5'2 versus, you know, 7'4 or, or whatever it takes. Um, mm. But in life in general, 
I think it's just unlocking what what lives inside of us mentally and and your definition of greatness doesn't have to be uh, you know uh, president or running your own company or mm-hmm. it can be someone who's great uh, uh, a great teacher or a great parent or so I don't think greatness has to be as grand as people uh, maybe espouse it to be I think greatness can reside in everyday moments that's right like first responders or yeah yeah or these moments when you watch your kids do something and you're just so proud like there's no greater feeling for a dad when you watch your kid do something that <laughs> inspires you you're like I could have never done that but like BK you how many Olympics have you been to uh, I've just been to I was talking about it with Russ yesterday I visited the Calgary Olympics, but Sydney is the only Olympics. I was a photographer with a press pass for beach volleyball and indoor volleyball. So just the 2000 Sydney Olympics. And Russ, you've been to how many Olympic Games? Uh, I think it would be. I think it'd be nine. Because you worked with yeah. NBC as a at like early blogging sort of right, like early internet yeah. kind of. Rep, uh, you would write content for NBC Sports. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I was a content producer for NBC Olympics uh, and, a, and a company called Quokka Sports in San Francisco for, uh, well, basically for, for about two and a half years. I went from Sydney 2000 to Salt Lake 2002. And that was the, I mean, the very early days of the internet before um, content was really settled on the internet just becoming another scaled screen, which is really what it is now. Like there's really no difference between what you see on the internet and what you see on television mm. um, or what you see on the internet and what you used to see in print. So th- this was a moment where we could actually develop new, new, new ways of, of delivering content mm-hmm. and um, you know, using everything from video to biometrics and, and putting it all together in a way that um, you know, was very production intensive, which is probably why the model didn't last, um, but absolutely glorious way of delivering uh content i mean mm-hmm. it was so unique i know as a team we won uh usa today's uh uh gold medal for olympic coverage in in uh in city 2000 and, and then i got invited back to the games in, in uh, salt lake uh, really in an expanded role and that's kind of where my career and at nbc i mean the best thing about them that you take from them is some people love um, the way that they deliver the Olympics. I know there's others in Canada that aren't necessarily in love with NBC's storytelling um, style, but I got a boot camp there over mm-hmm. the course of a couple of years, and and that philosophically has been built into everything that we do as an agency. That's right, because you take athletes and you help tell a story through for, through advertising, really, right? To help your athletes uh, have a really sustainable lifestyle by connecting them to brands. And then helping them tell a story of who this athlete is, right? And what and is that about? Is that right? Yeah, I, I mean, I used to say athletes and their stories are the currency of the Olympic movement, and it it's only now become quite popularized that that this idea of storytelling and commercial content, branded content, has kind of caught up to what I've been saying since about two thousand and one. Um, and that's okay. I mean, the market is caught up, but really, foundationally, our business has been saying that for a long time the real thematic resonance that you can create with an audience i always you know i I do big talks at marketing conferences and i begin by asking people what they remembered from the last olympic games and people raise their hands everyone has a memory there's Mm -hmm. there's almost no one without one right and every single memory when i poll the audience is 
oh, I remember Sidney Crosby's goal, or I remember Tess and Scott and that, um, the swan lift that they did. It was so glorious. Or I remember uh, John Montgomery um, drank that beer walking down Whistler Village. Every single story that resonates and has an imprint on you personally as a Canadian, um, your, your national identity, what you come to believe about your country, that's all given to you by these athletes that represent you. Right. Right. So I, I, I say, well, that's where the real power is. All of you have remembered it. So imagine if you, you were now the brand that decided those were the stories that you wanted to deliver to Canadians and that by association, mm-hmm. you would, you'd be remembered too. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, I think, where the market has gone now and why, as an agency, that, that approach has been so successful. And you're right. You think about like when I was a kid, and you think about Russia. You think because we're not watching the news, but we'd see the Olympics, and you'd see Russian athletes, and that was your impression of that country as these yeah, like absolutely. bears that could just, you know hockey players or, or gymnasts or you know they're just such a different caliber or the Germans just how big they were. That's yeah. how you think of that country. Like absolutely, um, that's really interesting. Well, I. Um, I'm really glad you guys are here and I, uh, wanted to get back to the selling marijuana story real quick while I, while I have you here. Um, and how important it is to have friends like you guys to make it in life. And like anybody listening to this could probably agree that the people that surround you, um, really make your life, uh, either, uh, a joy to be in or, or really a disaster. And it's like, and I always encourage like some of the people I speak to through my social media, I'm like, you don't need to keep friends around that are constantly tearing you down. And why would you surround yourself with people with, why wouldn't you have the people around you be your greatest allies and your greatest fan and also truth tellers. That'd be like, like what you told me the truth. You're like, so I'll, I'll, a little context. I think I was 16 or I was driving Yeah, and I had met this girl uh, questionably uh, with some questionable morals and she had an ex-boyfriend that had a large amount of weed. And marijuana was not legal at that time as it is now here in Canada and in California. It's legal in some other places too. But she said, if you take this $100 of weed to the Maylong weekend in Pigeon Lake and you sell it, you'll probably make 500 bucks. And I was like, you know, I was pretty entrepreneurial. And I'm like, I you know, had at that point already had seven jobs or something. And uh, I figured that would be a good idea. I didn't smoke it. I was just like, I'm going to sell it. And I remember bringing it there and getting in trouble with some of the locals and my friend Curtis Unland and we were held at axe point around a fire because we had sold them bad weed or something. And it was this, we were held hostage at a fire by axe for honestly five or six hours. I have to confirm with Curtis Unland how long it was until they got so high that we snuck away and we got away. But Russell found out that I had weed, that I was selling it. I'll, I mean, I can let you tell it from your perspective and then yeah, I'll share sure. mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I wasn't trying to make some grand statement that I, th- you know, thought would stand for the ages. I think I was just, you know, I was a young kid who had um, pretty clear lines about who who it is I wanted to hang out with. And I think even when I found this out, the way I framed it to you, I think this is right. I said, you know, if you if you're going to do that, I'm not going to tell you what you can and can't do. I honestly think you probably could have made 400 bucks. It would have been, you know, maybe it's the start of an entrepreneurial vision that could have been a career in cannabis. I don't know. But I, I said at the time, um, you'll have to find a new best friend because the only thing I could do uh, to make it real for you was withdraw my friendship. Like I wasn't going to just be on the sidelines while I watched you do something that I believed 
would a make our void our friendship and b would probably just be ridiculous uh for you long term based on the potential that i saw in you so Mm. that's kind of how i remember it yeah and and i remember tears in your eyes or at least you were really emotional and it really impacted me and i went and flushed them down the toilet like i that was it and i never i stopped seeing that girl and you know it's just these big moments. I mean, sometimes it only takes one. You know, like both of you has had had these very important moments in my life. And Larry Ethier, a mutual coach of all of ours, has also um, had these defining moments where he's like, "You got to tell your parents, Paul, that you're stealing things, and they'll support you." As soon as I told, and I, as soon as I told my parents I had a stealing problem, it's mm-hmm. it ended. And with the support of Larry, and uh, and he also, I was hanging out at this guy's house, and he said, if I see your car there, you're not going to start for my volleyball team. And this was a kid, I don't want to say his name, but lived near them and was a bad influence. Uh, and he knew that if I hung out with that kid, that my life would go probably go a certain way. And he's like, do you want volleyball or do you want to hang out with that kid? And it was just a clear choice. So I've had a couple of those moments. And you know why I wanted you guys here on my first podcast is just you know, just to share with my listeners how important it is to to really create a tribe around you that supports you, to really create a family that even if it's not your own family, your friends can become some of your family that are going to tell you the truth and are going to offer a sounding board, but also be a foundation that when you get yourself into trouble, that they can be like, um, Russell, what are you doing? Like, BK, like, why are you doing that? Just somebody that can tell the truth. And you guys have been that for me in many different ways. And some you may not even know. But when you look at your life and you go, now I'm in my 40s. And I'm like, how, what, what are these defining moments along the way that really help to shape who I am? And people ask that in interviews all the time. Right. And it's really those foundational teen years. Like who, you know, you were older than me too. You both are. But to have older friends that had really great music that you could introduce to me like bk has oh you know i have these playlists from you 10 years ago that are still in my old ipods that are like bk's playlist and there's these hilarious songs that that you've you know there were you know 50 songs deep of new music and just you know the how important it is what do you guys think about that like to have like to have bk like you growing up when you look at your circle of friends, like, do you see that that's really been a foundational thing for you? Or like, what is it that shaped your decisions? Yeah, I think uh, the older I get, the more I realize that uh, relationships in any form in life are really um, the most important thing, whether that's your relationship uh, with your spouse, uh, with your partner, with your kids with your friends uh, or God, whatever that relationship is, those are ultimately the mo- the biggest impact, I think, on our well-being. Um, so just like you said, the quality of the people you surround yourself with, I think is instantly reflected in the quality of your life. So to me, um, when you talk about that moment with, with Russ and selling weed, we don't realize what the big moments necessarily are as they happen. You didn't know that you would be telling that story some 30-ish years later. Right. So to me, I think that as I get older, I put more value on it. And I realize that it's a quality over quantity. I don't need to have a ton of friends. I just really, uh, I'm really proud of the friends I have made. And you get to an age you don't get any more longtime friends. That that door has closed. So these are my longtime friends. 
So I'm proud of the ones that uh, I have made in my life, and I feel like all of them have had a positive impact on who I am trying to be. Right, right. Aspire to be. Right. And do you have a weed flushing down the toilet story? Uh, no, uh, unfortunately, I don't have a weed flushing down the toilet story. I don't, I think Russ uh, threatened to not be my friend a few times. No, um, I, I don't, I don't, if you're gonna know. listen to country music, uh, we cannot be. <laughs> no, I yeah, didn't that. I was, I, I think, all in all, I was a pretty good kid. I definitely had some issues with uh, stealing through like college and high school and that, like shoplifting. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I, I would say maybe that would be the equivalent. What's that? I thought I was the only one. No, no. I th- I think in college it was more just a broke factor. It wasn't like a thrill-seeking factor. It was more like, hey, I don't have money. Um, <laughs> but in high school, it was go into you know the Seven Eleven, see what you could take, kind of thing. So I don't. I'm just glad that 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 went away. That was uh, that left me. I left that behind in college, I guess. So um, yeah. that's probably the closest equivalent. But no one, no one stopped threatened you? to take away my friendship. No, no, no one was like, if you don't change your ways, young man, you're going to end up <laughs> no. as a garbage pail kid. No, it's tough hearing that from from authority figures too. I mean, I've I basically um, ran almost purposefully in the opposite direction of authority. Uh, so. And I, that's why I'd say like constructively contrarian is is how I would define my my um, my core motivation. But sometimes there's these before and after moments that you have in your life where at the time of you don't understand the trajectory or the the long narrative arc that has now begun. Um, I recently suffered a stroke, and you know the, the part of the challenge with having a stroke is that you define your life before and after the stroke regardless of like it, that's how your life is now defined regardless of whether you want to or not so as you begin to reflect on it and a lot of people um, spend a lot of time and I'm not saying this isn't an appropriate way to do it but trying to figure out their way back to normalcy to, to feel the way that they used to feel right and um you know the concept of recovery is regaining the things that you feel you have lost in the process as a result of having that stroke and when we have these big before and after moments in life they're usually not as you know uh, consequential and you know just in in the moment you realize something new is now going to happen i read this or was introduced to this really beautiful poem by a spanish poet and and the essence of it was, was that you're you're on a ship and you're on the deck and you're enjoying the view and you um, you feel a rumbling below but you don't know what's happened but the kinetic energy of the boat hitting the rocks has entered your body and you begin to understand that something deep 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 within you has changed but you don't know what it is yet you don't know the trajectory that will be created from it but you have a sense even just looking out from the dock that superficial part of your life on the surface, right? That it, that 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 you have now, that you are now peacefully and quietly sitting or standing in your new life, mm. right? That your old life is 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 ending, and that mm. I think you have to, you know, you have to reflect on that to begin to accept that 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 actually is a real thing. You didn't know in the moment that that was what was going to 
to help unlock some of your greatness, right? Like, mm-hmm. You just recognize on reflection how consequential it was and how before and after it was, that there was a defi- divining line between what you were before and what you would have become had you taken that path. Mm-hmm. And we only recognize that by, by looking back and reflecting. And we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic now, so everyone has that urge to get back to normal as right. well. And BK asked me earlier, what's something I learned uh, since March or during this pandemic? Like, what's, you know, what is something about yourself that you learned? And because if we just struggle to get back to normal and we learn nothing, there's such a big opportunity during this uh, global shutdown and pandemic to really rebuild who we are, like to up level in a lot of ways. And I know a lot of people are using it for that rather than just choosing to be a victim or to complain about or just get lost in Netflix or the news. But like in what in this last three months or like, I guess we've been in this for more than three months. Yeah, but maybe six, seven months now. I, yeah, I think BK was asking me because I was here. I've been here in Vancouver for f- almost four months alone and BK had asked me. But I want to ask you guys and BK, I'll ask you what have you learned about yourself during this like during covid and we're still in we're in uh, october now the end of october and we're yesterday was the largest reported spike in you know that we've had in at least in the united states and europe's locking down in a few countries and it's like instead of just going i just want to return to to normal and every you know my my the the folks listening to this too like everyone's looking for a silver lining here at least those who are uh not everybody is but what have you learned brent in this time of shutdown and quarantine about yourself or any like has there been any big epiphanies or breakthroughs that you wanted to share yeah i think for me uh in april when we were really kind of locked down uh, I definitely noticed the importance of the what I call micro interactions you know the passing in the hallway at work asking people how they're doing hearing about uh, their weekend all those little things you kind of take for granted how important it is to have that because the second you don't have it for a period of a month or months you start to understand especially for myself because I'm single and live alone uh, you you go from having those to suddenly having none. So for mm-hmm. myself, that really shone through. Like the idea of why being in solitary confinement is such a unbelievable punishment yeah. comes to light after a few weeks of no interactions with other people. Uh, the other one which I tried to make, if anybody's familiar with Brene Brown, her two values has been one of, has been one of the most impactful things for me in the last few years which is for people who don't know uh, when you when you choose the things you value we usually have a pretty long list of things uh, and she asked that we narrow that down to two two that will guide our decision making and really influence us because if you stand for everything you stand for nothing so for me gratitude is one of those right. and I think that is the other huge takeaway I've had from all this it took away the things that used to be very basic like if i was in a bad car accident and i equate it to that when i couldn't walk for a period of time just getting up and walking i was so grateful for it Mm. so i think on a larger scale that's what's happening with covid and i know for russ going through the traumatic year he's had that that's compounded the things that 
he's grateful for from a health standpoint i look at that 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 also is is with COVID and our society in whole we went out for dinner um and for me that's something i haven't done since february like out in the evening for dinner so being grateful to do it um i just hope everybody realizes that uh you know when we do uh when we no longer have COVID cases, uh, that we all still carry that with us and don't take things for granted. Just like after I recovered from the accident, uh, you know, a year or two later, you start taking things for granted again. Mm-hmm. So I'd say gratitude and the, the <coughs> social interactions. Gratitude and then just the ability to have a, com- a community around you, like your work in community. And you also, what's that rower machine you just got? What's it called? Uh, it's a hydro. A hydro. It looks <laughs> yeah. so cool. Brought like, to you by. Yeah, but this, this podcast is brought to you by Hydro. Yeah, and the, the makers of Hydro. Uh, did Peloton make it? No, they oh. definitely didn't. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so during, how, is there one book that you'd recommend that you've, is that that Brene Brown book? That is that something um, you'd recommend that one's to my dare, listeners? That one's Dare to Lead. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, it definitely, if if not the whole book, um, if they just look up two values, I I think it's beneficial to everyone. You just pretty much print out a sheet of values that she has or you could find online and circle the ones you think are important to you. And then after that, go back and pick the two most important ones. Mm-hmm. And just always ask yourself if if your your actions and what you're valuing uh, align with those those two things. So um, I would say that would be my my takeaway for it. I love that. That's so it simplifies it because when you're committed to so many things, you get you can be you can't be really effective or even have the simplicity or the clarity to be like this is what I, this is the the flags that that that. Sorry, this is the sails that run my ship or the flags that I fly, my gratitude. For me, I think it would be gratitude and contribution, like finding a way to add value in some way, whether it's through the the music or tithing or, or you know, the ALS fundraiser or Kate uh, Winslet's Golden Hat Foundation or the PR ministries, like finding ways that that those are values that I learned from my dad about tithing and and that have that have really been the anchors i think i think one other important part to that is she makes the point of you don't truly see people until you know what they value i think is really impactful i know at work Mm -hmm. we've i've kind of led a group of people who've all done this exercise and it does reveal a lot like uh it's amazing how few duplicates we had i thought we'd all have a lot of duplicates but in reality we've had a wide range and even you saying contribution um you know it's it's very interesting to see what people ultimately narrow down to their two yeah what about you russ um what have i learned yeah what, COVID? Have you, what have you learned uh, uh you yeah and then i want to hear your books because you read a book a week or so uh, pretty pretty close yeah um what I learned from COVID, I think, was, you know, because it happened uh, in parallel with um, with the stroke, is just to leave what's heavy behind. Mm. Oh, I love that. Yeah, we, we take, I think we just, we burden ourselves with so much that it, you know, like, <clears throat> if you have a finite amount of energy and 
half of it goes into carrying the baggage of the past into your future. I mean, just think about it for a minute. Crazy. What, what's the point? So for me, it, I mean, it, I think I, I hope that other people were able to come to these types of conclusions during COVID. For me, that was mostly, uh, that was mostly motivated by the stroke. But it happened, I mean, literally a month before lockdown. So the, the timing of it and how I was able to rethink what I was trying to get out of recovery, as I spoke about before, and what I was trying to understand about myself mm-hmm. um, and, you know, standing quietly uh, in your new life. Right. Oh, it's beautiful. I would say that was, that's probably my, that's probably my big learning. Yeah. Yeah. Leave what's heavy behind. Unburden yourself. Man. Maybe that's the name of the podcast. We're still trying to lock down. It's gra- <laughs> the grass is greener. The green zone. Leave what's heavy behind. Uh, and, I, and books. You wanted some. I bo- want to know. Yeah, I want to know what. Like you know, maybe the the one book I know you've read so many. You're a, an avid reader, and your goal is to read one a, a week. Still, is that what you're doing? Yeah, I did it. I did it in, in 2017, and and then I did it again. I decided to do it again in 2020, and then I had like maybe basically three or four weeks where I couldn't read. Wow. Yeah. So I was like, oh man, how am I going to get back on track? Because now I'm like seven books behind by the by the time I was ready to go again. But I knew that, you know, my my stroke was was mostly uh, you know like a, like a concussive type of brain fog that you have. So I thought that you know there was a lot of feeling that I didn't have in my left side, and if I did a couple of things. Uh, in my in my um, re- rehabilitation, that if I could focus on reading, it would actually help me restore some of the neural patterns. Uh, and you know, when I did an EEG scan of my brain, you could see this like literally a black hole at the place where my stroke took place, and that there was no there was no neural pathways that had, had been established, and that was probably what was blocking my feeling in my left hand and my left foot. So I thought if I could read and just really consciously engage in um, the words and then, um, you know, write and, and try and uh, respond to the reading. And one of my favorite things to do is, is to take a moment after you've read something provocative and have immediate self-application where you would journal the, the reading and you'd create a dialogue instead of a monologue with the, with the author. And I did that really well. I don't, I'm sure that a lot of your, um, your, your, your listeners and, uh, people who follow you have, have read Pima Chodron, uh, When Things Fall Apart, which I think is, you know, really a book that every single person should read, even in anticipation of difficult times in their lives mm-hmm. if they haven't gone through it. Um, that's the one book I'd recommend. But um, I want to add one more to that because you talk about actioning things. And I've always, I've always prided myself on taking, you know, th- knowing what's right, th- coming up with an idea to create action, and then immediately acting on it. Right, no reservation, no no time to contemplate it, just doing it. And th- I saw that I read that in a book called Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, which I think is a beautiful read. Um, a woman named uh, Natalie Novogratz, right. and um, just this woman who principally lived her life the same way. You right. know, big problems. How am I going to be a solutionista? Get myself in the middle of this. You know, really actively take part in it and. And figure it out, you know, make the road by walking, right? Right. Yeah, so. I, I, I've once recently heard that we just major in minor things. Like we have all these little problems and we and we need bigger problems, like bigger th- solutions, things that, and it sounds weird at first, but we get so 
in the minutiae, we get locked down, uh, sweating the small stuff and worrying right. about majoring in minor things. Right. <laughs> I got 99 problems and 86 of them aren't worth bringing into my future life, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. And I love you touched on the stuff in your past, the heaviness, like, you know, the, how, cause that's whether it's Joe Dispenza or some of the landmark work that we've done is a big part of it is like finding a way to have your what's happened in the past not define or be your identity that you drag into your future and gets between you and all your relationships like when you look at somebody that you're in relationship most people have so much of their past between them that they're not able to see that person that's right in front of them because every relationship from their past they've dragged and that is the filter is that person acts a certain way well like well that's just the way that jenny used to act like that. right like, right um, so uh, we do have to wrap it up because uh, we have a, a very hard to get brunch reservation very nearby <laughs> here at, at one of the places we just love called Cafe Medina. Um, but this has been really, this is great. This is exactly what I wanted was just to introduce uh, the, the podcast and have, it means a lot to have both you guys on here with me. They're, you're such a big part of my past and you are the part of my past that I do want to drag around into my future. <laughs> but um, if you're just joining us, um, please subscribe and review on iTunes. That is what does all the magic for making sure we can keep doing more of these. I'll be releasing. Um, you can also leave a comment there. Uh, so you review it, you can share it, you subscribe to this podcast. We'll come up with a really sweet, clever name. Uh, I may crowdsource that with some of my amazing fans uh, on Facebook. Um, and just real quick, uh, where can, and, and if anybody wants to follow some of the, the stuff that you guys are doing and you want to share that, is there somewhere they can find you? Yeah, I mean, Manifesto Sport Marketing is on line at manifesto underscore sport on Instagram and Twitter. Okay. And, uh, I mean, all of our athletes are there, and we we're pretty avid posters. So yeah, you are I encourage people to yeah. to uh, reach out. Great, and BK, anything for you? I'm an online ghost, as you He's, know. <laughs> you are. You have, there's ten years you didn't have a phone. There you go. Uh, and so yes, yeah, so <laughs> thank you guys, Brent and uh, thank you and Rusty for being a part of my first little moment here on podcasting. And um, to all of you listeners out there, I, I usually talk about fear on a lot of the concerts. I've done 120 live shows over uh, the pandemic. And something very important to remember is that God has not given you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. And that just resonates with me so deeply, um, that verse. So I usually... I uh, like to end with a little nugget on fear because we fear really makes you dumb and I feel like and and love makes you intuitive and smart and I always share a story in India when I was on my motorbike and I was so fearful and feared I was going to die and or be maimed and I put a picture of Oliver on my gas tank and that love for him made me relax and when I was in the loving space I was very smooth and intuitive but when I was fearful I was rigid and I like very dangerous to myself but I want to leave you guys with that and yes please subscribe uh, leave a review over there on the iTunes podcast I'll be dropping some great music sets interviewing some of your favorite actors musicians thinkers uh, biohackers and we're just going to really create this uh, podcast I just want to share some of my amazing friends with you and uh, some of the artists that I inspire me and thinkers that inspire me so thanks again for being here and if you want to follow me you can check out paulgreen.com I'm paulgreenofficial on Instagram Facebook paulgreenmedia on Twitter thanks for being here remember to be kind to yourself and we'll see you soon